This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. I want to open with a quote. This is from James Baldwin, written in 1962. You'll probably recognize it. Whatever white people do not know about Negroes reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves. I was looking for a way to start my talk and somebody just sent that to me yesterday and it seemed so perfect for what I wanted to talk about today. So I wanna talk about um, a Dharma topic of the topic of spiritual bypassing, spiritual bypassing. Uh, but I wanted to call my talk Undoing Spiritual Bypassing because I joined the word spiritual bypassing with uh, the name of a national group that teaches um, undoing white um, entitlement. And the, the name of the group is um, Undoing Racism. So I'm calling my talk Undoing Spiritual Bypassing because the gist of my talk is that if we can work with our spiritual bypassing, we can also pretty much in the same stripe work with our attachment, our very deep and subtle attachment to white privilege. And I do apologize to people here that don't identify as white, um, that I seem to be addressing uh, white people, uh, but that is seem to be the majority of our sangha. And I, I don't, I don't think you'll, I don't think you'll be left out exactly, uh, but there may be some things that you uh, um, don't have to be quite so concerned about. So first of all, what is spiritual bypassing? So I'm open to any of you that have a definition that you would like to share. If there is anybody, I can't see everybody, so if you don't mind just uh, unmuting and speaking up, I think that will work. If anybody has something they want to say. Okay. Hi, Pat. Oh, hi, Sherry. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure exactly what spiritual bypassing is, but I've been accused of it, so I kind of like uh, looked into it a little bit. I'm still kind of quizzical, but. Uh, the, the way the situation was there was a lot of inflammatory speech about political stuff and it was it was uh, upsetting to me and I uh, tried to interject some um, Buddhist uh, voodoo calmness <laughs> into the group and uh, and someone just turned on me and said oh you're spiritually bypassing and I thought oh is that what you know, trying to calm things down. And uh, so I'm looking forward to your talk to maybe clarify what that's all the accusation meant. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that, that story. And I, I hope that I will have more stories from people uh, when we get to the meat of this, of this talk. So uh, I welcome people to speak up and, and confess because uh, every single one of us is guilty of spiritual bypassing. So. Nobody slept out. I may be the worst, I don't know. But <laughs> um, I'll start off with two definitions from two different people that were sources for this talk. First is from Bob Rinpoche, who wrote Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which is what uh, 
alerted me to my incredible degree of spiritual bypassing back when I first read that book in early 2000s, the early 2000s. Uh, Trungpa says, walking the spiritual path properly is a very subtle process. It is not something to jump into naively. There are numerous sidetracks which lead to a distorted, ego-centered version of spirituality. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we are developing spiritually when instead we are strengthening our egocentricity through spiritual techniques. He's pretty rough on it. He makes it sound like, uh, why even practice if you're doing uh, spiritual bypassing? But I've done a lot of it, and I still value my practice, so I, I don't think anybody should quit uh, uh, once they see their, or if they see their bypassing. Um, the other quote is from uh, Robert uh, Masters, who wrote a uh, book that we read an excerpt of, uh, in the wake up class. Uh, and he says, spiritual bypassing, a term first coined by psychologist John Wellwood in 1984, is the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with our painful feelings, unresolved wounds, and developmental needs. It is much more common than we might think, and in fact is so pervasive as to go largely unnoticed, except in its more obvious extremes. So um, in my words, I would say spiritual bypassing is a subtle way of practicing pain avoidance under the guise of practicing Zen. It's not just uh, uh, germane to uh, Buddhism. Uh, all religions and all spiritualities have plenty of bypassers. Um, so it's a practice. So in our practice, it's supposed to wake us up. Spiritual bypassing works to kind of keep us a little bit asleep and kind of anesthetize us to uh, uh, who we really are, the realities about ourselves. So, okay. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's not, this is not just, uh, just Buddhism. This is, is all, all practices and all religions, but uh, Buddhism is especially rife for it because we have uh, certain practices that are kind of foreign to, uh, our country, you know, for one thing, detachment is, is one. We can uh, easily fall into a trap and not even know it. Okay, so I want to talk about my experience with Undoing Racism. Undoing Racism is a national um, outfit that goes around to different cities and holds seminars. And I got to go to one of these last fall. It was a two-day seminar. And, um, you know, I thought, ah, that's going to be a piece of cake. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so used to uh, sitting in uh, uh, groups and talking about my inner feelings. And I have a feeling this, this is just going to be getting together and talking about our inner struggles with racist ideas and kind of letting them see the light. And um, uh, this, is, this is just going to be you know, what I'm used to, and uh, it's going to be great. Well, it was great, but it wasn't anything like that. Not anything. I really had the rug pulled out from under me when I got there. Uh, this group spent about a day or about a morning um, talking about a lot of, uh, of the true history of the United States. A lot of it was news to me. Uh, I have come to this 
very late, and I feel a little humble talking to you all about issues of race because I have been so blind most of my life to uh, racial issues, and I'm only just now waking up to it, and I realize some of you have been activists and have done a great deal all through your life, and I may be saying very simplistic things, uh, but to me, they're new. But anyway, after warming us up and talking a lot about uh, uh, the history of racism in this country, about the middle of the afternoon, they spring on us their definition of racism, and it was outrageous. I was like, "Whoa!" Their definition, uh, the definition of undoing racism, of racism, is that all white people are racist. Is that familiar to anybody? Are, are you all familiar with that definition of racism? Okay, I, I see. I see a couple of hands, a couple of head shakes. Yeah, so it's not it's totally totally new. Uh, it didn't take me long though to kind of warm up to this. In fact, I think by the next day I was uh, on board with it as being uh, maybe not uh, a kind definition, but a very effective definition of racism in the United States. It sounds unfair, but it sounds unfair, and you think, well, a newborn baby is racist. Somebody who's been spending all their life, maybe, working against a white person who's been working uh, against um, institutionalized racism, they're still a racist. It doesn't seem fair. But if you can get past uh, the, uh, it may be hurting your ego a little bit, or, or uh, get past that, uh, you can start to see the effectiveness of this definition. Because first of all, focusing on individual guilt is a kind of a distraction. It's not, it's something we all have to work on, but if we spend our time dithering about who's a racist and who's not, am I a bigger racist than you? Are you a bigger racist than me? Are policemen the worst racist? Are bad policemen the worst racist? Uh, if we get rid of them, will, will the problem go away? Uh, we can defund the police force and maybe that's, that's a start. All this kind of stuff is, um, is just a waste of time and it doesn't even begin to address the absolutely humongous problem of institutionalized racism, which is just, uh, it's not even built into our country, it kind of is our country in a way. It's so, uh, it's just so ubiquitous and it's so much bigger than all of us. So this kind of a definition is a call to action. And, uh, you know, by just working with our thoughts and working with our little, in our little minds with um, our, our feelings about race, although it's necessary, I don't mean to say it's not, but it's only gonna work if every single person did it. And we know that's not gonna happen. So we have to take action and, um, I, I myself am um, not able to say yet what action means to me. Uh, I've always spiritualized, spiritually bypassed myself away from doing a lot of action, but uh, I, I feel a deep call to do to do something. Um, and I'll repeat something else I heard that maybe many of you people who are more uh, used to this subject have heard, but uh, this was said uh, at the um, Branching Streams Conference last uh, fall also, this all happened about the same time as this workshop, 
when um, I'm having a senior moment, I can't, the woman who used to be Koji's partner, who's the uh, head of the New Orleans Zen Center, who is a criminal justice activist. Um, Michaela Bono. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Michaela. Yeah. Uh, Michaela said in a talk that she gave that the criminal justice system is working as designed, that it was designed to destroy the lives of black and brown people, and it's doing just fine. And I was shocked. So with that little um, piece about how important it is that we uh, recognize what's going on and that we recognize and acknowledge our part in it, and our part may just be that we don't do anything. It doesn't matter if we have racist thoughts or not. If we don't do anything, we're part of the problem. And that's what I think this definition that all white people are racist, what, what's so important about it, that if we don't do anything, we're, we're complicit. And it's such a big, big, huge problem that it's not going to go away without a concerted effort. Uh, back to master to talking about spiritual bypassing, and I hope that you'll be able to see that in all these points and all these different ways that we bypass, uh, we use our practice to convince ourselves that we are uh, wonderful Zen students and really great people, that we can also use, that we're also doing at the same time, living in our little bubbles of, of white comfort and white uh, privilege and we don't even realize it. And our, we're so habituated to expecting things to be there for us as we need them, and we've gotten to enjoy all the spoils of this uh, country that advertises itself as so free, and it has been free for us, at least. But we're, we're uh, enjoying all this at the expense of a huge number of people that have to live in fear, that lose their lives, that end up in prison for very small offenses sometimes. Uh, it's important that we, that we see this, this part of us. And so I'm approaching it through this list. I thought a very, very complete list that this guy Robert Masters uh, put together um, for the different ways that we use our practice to pump ourselves up or to uh, feel good about ourselves and feel comfortable and so I'm going to go through this. Uh, uh, I think he's got about 10 points here, and I'm going to go through each one. And uh, most of the things I'm saying about them are my words. They're not his. He just made a list. And, uh, and this is the point. This is at this part of the talk. I, I hope uh, any of you will, will share. Uh, if you see yourself in uh, a particular point, if you will just speak up and, and share any experiences you've had personal experiences with uh, a particular aspect of, of spiritual bypassing. I'd love to hear them. Uh, I'll try to confess a few of mine. The first one is exaggerated detachment. You know, our practices is learning to be able to detach from all the roiled up emotions and the problems that, that cloud us, that cloud our minds. And it's one of the things that really attracted me to this practice, I'll be honest, that it was wonderful to find that I could be with a group of people and I didn't have to interact with them 
And yet I was with them and felt like I was a part of them. And that was one of the things that really, really drew me to this practice when I first started. And it took me years and years, maybe 25 years, to start to be able to attach to the people that I had detached from so efficiently. When you think about our practice, I mean, we don't make eye contact when we're in a for informal settings. We don't make eye contact. We don't speak to each other. We're in silence. So we are being trained in detachment. And then it can be very convenient to use that uh, as a way to just not engage when it's necessary or when it would be helpful to engage. And we've got a perfect out. So I suspect that there are probably almost 100% participation in this particular type of bypassing. We say, others can take care of it. They'll do a better job than I will. I don't need to concern myself. Anybody have anything they want to say? Let me see if there's anybody. I, I think some things have been coming in. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of chance here. I have a um, question. Um, okay, who's speaking? My name is Larry Beckham. Oh, okay. Um, I was just reading your uh, chat note. I'm a visitor a couple of times. And um, I've been active in the movement off and on. And it seems like statements like um, all that good people can do to let evil win is do nothing is a blaming statement mm -hmm. and I struggle with this and it's against everything I've learned about the Tao but uh, I have hard time letting go the blame I was raised in blaming family um, and uh, struggle with the juxtaposition of living the water course way but doing good in the world. So when you say blame, you mean blaming other people for being racist or just blaming? Oh, blaming yourself for doing nothing. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right that we all do that. Everybody blames. Yeah. We all, and very, very I've heard Alan Watts speak of the uh, futility of the do-gooder. All do-gooders do more damage oh dear well that seems like a pretty blanket statement but I'm, I'm sure well, he was prone to that blanket statements yes. yeah well you said in here you heard differently that all people are racist and uh i think that's very true we always other we're always othering the other yeah. you know we like to separate ourselves from the other and in, uh so i totally agree that in some way all people are racist. But I was at a uh, uh, food for thought presentation on campus uh, one lunch hour, and it was led by a psychologist who uh, said, you can't grow up in the U.S. and not be uh, some racist somewhat. That's You're right. All, that's all, we, all of us will internalize it with our upbringing. Okay, but I do want to take us back, though, to this definition that all white people are racist, because right now we're in such a crisis, and we have to, uh, we uh, are called to do something, I think, about the, the, the situation in this country. So I, I want to really concentrate on, 
um, the particular kind of racism that we are experiencing here. Thank you a lot for your comments. And Shuli, Shuli says, all my adult life I've had black, white, brown, and other friends, and I'm very happy about it. I would be much more alone in this country otherwise. Lovely. And, uh, you know, I think that is uh, a state that, you know, I maybe have uh, deprived myself of by living in a white bubble, a white, uh, much of my life, and I haven't really made friends in others, you know. We all grow up sometime, you know. Well, I want to get back to, um, uh, and anybody have any comments about, in particular about detachment and how they've used detachment in their, in their life to make things a little bit easier, make them be a little bit happier, feel a little bit better about themselves. Okay, I want to go on to the second point then, which is emotional numbing and repression. Numbing and repression. When I first started practicing, uh, I practiced Rinzai Zen, which was pretty tough, it was pretty intense. I went to long seven-day sessions, start very early in the morning and end at the end of the day, and I was in a lot of physical pain, and I would do physical things to block my pain, and I did it pretty effectively, actually. Uh, so I could, uh, I, I, I figured out, without trying very hard, I figured out some way to breathe, kind of maybe the way that women are taught to breathe in childbirth, to ease the pain, and I breathe a certain way, and I would notice that when I go to these retreats, the first couple of days would be heinously hard and painful, and then I just wouldn't feel anything anymore, any pain, but I also wouldn't feel any particular anything, really, and the days would go, it would go very fast, and, you know, I looked like a really good Zen student, you know, because I could sit for long periods of time, and, uh, but, uh, you know, I wasn't really... I wasn't really uh, getting a full experience at all. Uh, but that's physical, but we do the same thing with our minds also. Um, I, I, I'm really good at this. I kind of, I live in the animal realm, you know, the six realms. It's a realm I like to be in a lot. It's a, it's a realm of just putting your head down and just going through and doing it, you know, just plowing through. Don't want to feel pain. Don't want to feel anything. Just get it done. Therefore, I, I cannot feel the pain. Okay, the third emotional bypass. Uh, this might be the one that Sherry was um, alluding to, and that is overemphasizing the positive. You know, we're supposed to look for the good in nature in everyone. You know, we want to fully experience the beauty in life. But sometimes, and, and this is a really subtle, this is really subtle because personally, I really like people that always have nice things to say about other people because I tend to be the other way, sort of um, the more negative approach to people. And when I'm around someone who says nice things about people, it lifts me up and it makes me realize, oh, there's a part of this person I'm not, I'm not seeing. And um, so it can be a very lovely trait. But it can also pinpoint a person who is not really wanting to see any messiness, not wanting to see, a, you know, the way Pema Children talks about uh, our messy, stinky, karmic lives, uh, things pop out when uh, they shouldn't, or 
fall in love with the wrong person or we you know all the all the, the messy things in our lives and our addictions and that kind of thing and if if a person is unwilling to see any of that in themselves and keep everything very uh, clean and sanitized and neat in their lawn mode all the time and um, you know it could be spiritual bypassing going on and not wanting to face um, truisms about our political uh, situation, which maybe Sherry, you were uh, alluding to, uh, trying to um, not really see the uh, realities, you know, just kind of look at the positive side and not really see the whole issue or not see people in their wholeness. And usually what that means is you're not seeing yourself in your wholeness. You're not seeing the whole, the whole person. So uh, overemphasis on the positive and not wanting to see my own anger. And the next one on this list is anger phobia. Uh, so not wanting to see uh, our own anger. We like to think that we've worked really hard to deal with our anger. And when it rises up in us, we deny it's there. It's not just not acting it out. And a lot of times it might not be effective to not act out your anger, but not even to see that you're feeling angry. You will be showing up in some part of your body, but you're you're just not you you, you can't bear to see that uh, things are not working out the way you planned. And here's this anger still with me after 30 years. You know, um, what what does that say about my practice? <laughs> but um, these things are with us always, and it's important that we recognize them. It's important that we see that we see that we are stuffing. Stuffing our part of our part of our life, part of our our being. Well, the next one on this list is uh, blind or uh, overly tolerant compassion. According to uh, Joan Halifax and uh, who we've been studying in Charles' class, this is probably misuse of the word compassion because Joan says compassion has no shadow side. True compassion is this total goodness. So maybe. Um, blind or overly tolerant compassion really might be referring to something more like empathy or something that we uh, can uh, burn out on and we can feel like we're really great and lovely bodhisattvas and loving someone else but we can be uh, quite aggressive sometimes in our in our love or you know in our empathy for those people yes katie okay um I think this one, to me, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I find myself sometimes, um, if somebody says something that seems to be um, a little bit racist or sort of, or if they're, and I can think of why they might be saying it, or I can think of how hurt they would be if I sort of moved into, like, addressing or question asking to have a conversation about what they meant or sort of um, just small, small things where you, you can see maybe that you ought to, there's an opportunity, like something doesn't sit right with you. Um, but you also then sort of feel like we are 
supposed to stand for peace and why would I go mess up this lovely like person's day they've had a hard life something like that I don't know <laughs> yes yes that's, that's exactly. how I practice it I think yeah and I think it's important to look at what's going on in you when you're you know when you're having those those kind of thoughts um, you know is there fear or it's like oh I don't know what to say or frustration uh, I don't know how to to handle this I, I don't agree but I can't say anything um, that kind of a reaction yeah and yeah yeah thank you that's lovely yeah Kathy did you have your hand up I think it's it's I think it's always both and rather than either or I think like we're both too compassionate in the wrong way and we're both compassionate in a helpful way so I, I think it's always I don't think anything anything that he masters is saying isn't true but it's I think it's always both and uh, I mean I always was I was always really excited that when I heard uh, the Dalai Lama say, the purpose of life is to be happy. I thought, gosh, what if everybody just wanted to be happy? <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wanted to do anything that would make anyone unhappy. <laughs> um, so as somebody who myself has, is a great at anesthetizing myself and numbing my feelings, so it's both and. I mean, both I do that and both sometimes I don't do it. So I was taking this class too that Pat took and it's just been incredibly helpful to examine my position of white privilege in the society. You know, it's been extremely helpful and not easy. And I think it's, I hope that we get to do the class again sometime so other people can take it. And we've talked about that, but it's, it, yeah, it's it's really hard when you live in the society and you've had so much, I mean, I feel so lucky to have so much wealth <laughs> of all kinds. And uh, I, I'm still like Pat, just struggling. How can, how can I work with this situation and how, what kind of action can I take in, in trying to change what's going on right now, which pretty much I see the police shooting people as a, as a modern day form of lynching, um, which actually didn't end until I think the mid 1900s. So I think, you know, I'm glad that people are thinking about it, but I think we got we can't get caught in either or either, either we're a racist or we're not, or either we're, uh, and I think as Buddhists, we come from a tradition that is not about black and white, either or. Uh, so I think we're, we're fortunate to be exposed to the more Eastern form of thinking, which is more about both and. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me, too, that this list can sound a little bit... Uh, negative and yes of course there is a mixture of things going on it's really important and i think it takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing and bringing it up and i thank you for that okay thank you uh, i think don had a question out on the chat she asked um, um uh, 
She said, please give an example of overly tolerant compassion. Uh, again, I, the word compassion, I think he's using it, not uh, maybe not the way we, we think of it, uh, but overly tolerant uh, empathy or uh, caring, caring uh, what appears to be caring too much about somebody. And um, I, I guess codependence is a, is a part of this. Maybe it's referring to, this is my take on it at least, that referring to uh, um, uh, just uh, being, uh, uh, having no boundaries and uh, allowing things to go on that aren't good for the person that, that is the object of your, of your so-called compassion. Um, that uh, enabling kinds of, of behavior, letting people um, run over you or uh, abuse your kindness and not drawing a boundary around that uh, or, um, you know, where it would be uh, better to uh, uh, maybe a child that is not able to leave home and is very dependent and is drinking a lot and, and not keeping, uh, not being respectful and maybe used to be kicked out and, you know, um, but can't do it because you've got this kind of false feeling of compassion. You know, I, I think that's what he's talking about. That's my take on it anyway. Do you want to uh, speak up and say anything, Don, or is, did that answer your question? Uh, yes, I think it answered my question. Um, I asked the question because of this whole concept of uh, the net of Indra. And I don't want, don't mean to get us off topic, but the fact that we are all connected and that um, when we jump to conclusions about what others are thinking or feeling, we do a disservice to them. And combined with the fact that there's really no difference in, in, you know, between us when it comes down to it. We all have pain, suffering, um, etc. So that uh, is different, I might say, having, having compassion or understanding that we're all connected is different than excusing poor behavior. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. Uh, that's all. Right. Yes, thank you. I think true compassion would always be uh, uh, able to face what a person really needs and really wants. And if we're running over that or we're making decisions about what another person wants or needs without really understanding, then that is not true compassion. And it's... Um, can lead to all kinds of problems. Pat? Okay, uh, just a minute. I was just looking at this note here from Bruce, so I'll get back to that in a minute. Okay, who's, who's speaking? Hey, Pat, it's Josh. Hi, Josh. Um, Let me see I, if I can... So I have an example of um, uh, overly tolerant empathy, one that I think is pretty common. Um, when, when people say like, for example, about my grandparents, that um, that they believe what they believe because it was just the world that they grew up in. That is an example of overly tolerant compassion. 
um, that their circumstances led to them um, saying some things that um, maybe I don't agree with, but also maybe reflect certain beliefs that um, uh, protect a system that has kept some people up and kept other people down. Um, they may have grown up in a world like that, but they also lived through the civil rights movement, right? So there's, there's um, when you use a circumstance as a means of dismissing other people's prejudice, that's overly tolerant compassion. Um, mm. I think it's a little complicated though, because you can go too far in the other direction um, and you can, you can describe um, racism as a thing that's so monstrous that only monsters are racist rather than humans. And if you ascribe racism to only, only to monsters, then it's not something that we can change. But if we recognize right. that it's something that's human, then it is a thing that we can change, right? So I think the, the important thing is to acknowledge the difference between racism and prejudice, right? People are prejudiced, systems are racist. Okay, well that's a, that, yeah, that, that would be one definition. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And uh, I don't know, you know, it's not, you're, you're right, it's very, very complicated because you do need to understand where people are coming from. And, uh, but there is a certain way that, uh, in any way that you can find to correct that way of thinking or to help, uh, to help point out uh, fallacies and it would be wonderful. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Pat. Um, and okay, Bruce had something out here. Um, Bruce said, Sherry asked a question earlier that I'd love us to address. What's the difference between taking refuge and solace in our practice and bypassing? Wow, okay. What's the difference? Can we take too much refuge? Can we can we hide away in our refuge? Pat? Yes? Choro. Choro. Many years ago uh, in a Dharma talk, I asked what I thought was a perfectly decent Zen kind of question. And it was, what's the difference between taking refuge and clinging? And um, the speaker turned to me, turned away from me and said, let go of your anger. And it, it, it hit me upside the head. I didn't think I was angry. I was unaware that I was angry. I didn't think I was angry asking that question. It was like a real inquiry for me and it sort of along these lines. And I don't actually know what they saw that caused them to say that. But I came to realize that I had totally not faced my anger. I was afraid of my anger. And I was being invited to let go of it before I even knew it was there, you know, that I was, that I could be and was often, you know, angry. So that opened something for me. But my first response to that was shock and kind of humiliation. And I didn't ask a question in a Dharma talk for two years after that. I was so <laughs> traumatized, but it really opened something later. Yeah. 
So he saw then that that your your this uh, clinging that you were doing was was somehow based on anger and maybe maybe fear. Anger is usually sitting on top of fear. Uh, so that's what he was seeing in what you said. I don't know. It was she. I, I, I was a she. I don't know, but but I realized, you know, it just to speak to fear. I was afraid of myself. Yeah, I had to face that before I could deal with anything else. Thank you. Well, that's just an excellent point to bring up because I think that's just about what all of this is about: is fear of ourselves, fear that we, um, you know, we aren't this wonderful being that we tell ourselves we are and we see little cracks in it all the time and it's scary. Sherry, in your situation, it seemed like you had, uh, you said it was a political, uh, was it a political uh, situation where you were talking politics and you um, uh, sort of said, oh, let's be peaceful. Is that, is, is that right? I can't hear you. I think you're not muted. Yeah. I mean, there, I unmuted. Um, um, I guess I was just really turned off by the way the uh, discussion turned into um, a very uh, vulgar kind of situation. <laughs> Be, uh, and these are all so-called Buddhist people and it, using a lot of uh, pretty harsh words. And I just wanted to, like, maybe try to put the fire out. but. Uh, do you think that there might have been some fear in there definitely i was fearful of the way people were acting and maybe felt threatened and uh yeah definitely mm -hmm. yeah. i think sometimes and being fearful of not knowing the right thing to do you know not knowing how to not, not knowing what to say or, or feeling that you have to say something and not knowing what it is and not showing up as not a you know, great peacemaker. Yeah. Pat? Thank, thank you all. And um, uh, sure that uh, is a huge help to hear, be reminded that it is anger and, and fear that's at the bottom of um, just about all of these. And we, we don't want to see it. We don't want to feel it. Hey, Pat, I, could I add one thing? Yes, please do. The reason that I wanted to go back to Sherry's question was I think that I think that the key word in one of those definitions of bypassing that you were reading at the beginning was avoidance. And I think that there's all kinds of nuance clearly in this, but that for me the difference between bypassing and taking refuge or solace is whether it's an attempt to avoid something, uh, discomfort or fear or anger or whatever. Or on the other hand, an attempt to manage or regulate. Like you may be in a, in a situation where you simply can't take something on and you need to take refuge to heal, to gain perspective, to get support or whatever. Like th there's a way that on, on one level it can look like you're avoiding because you're taking refuge, you're, you're going, you're withdrawing to some degree. But at a deeper level, maybe that's part of your process of actually facing and confronting it. And, and so whatever, whatever's driving the avoidance, I think that's where the bypassing comes from. 
and refuge can, I think, either be avoidance or actually engagement based on where you are at a particular moment and what you're doing with that refuge. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to thank Katie for this interpretation that I'm reading on the chat. I, I, I just love it because it's so, we can all relate to extra helpings and getting too much on our plate that we don't need. And I, I, I don't know whether you read this or you made it up, but I think, uh, thank you. It's really, it puts it right very concrete where it hits us and where we, uh, especially somebody like me who loves to eat so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll read it. Uh, so this is what Katie says. She says, she's addressing Larry to your earlier question. When I think of being a do-gooder, I think of someone who acts with an idea in mind of saving others from some external problem. My interpretation of what Pat is saying about inaction, meaning we are complicit, is this, that our practice compels us to stop ignoring the fact that as white folks, we get an extra helping, even if we don't ask for it. <laughs> we get our extra helping since our country's laws, justice systems, schools, hiring practices give white folks more opportunities by giving folks of color fewer, exactly. If we pretend not to see that we get extra helpings every time, or if we do see them, but we leave them on our plate and do not give them away, or even if we do not give, we do give them away, but we don't go into the kitchen and ask what is up with this unfair distribution, then we are kind of looking the other way. Oh, wow, this is just brilliant, Katie. <laughs> oh, not only do you have good words, but you're a really good typist to get all that out there. Yeah. That, uh, yeah what? May I comment? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the thing that um, one one thing I think about all the time is how there doesn't seem to be uh, an easy way for white people to talk with each other or talk with people of color about their feelings and thoughts that are that are really what's happening inside in regard to discussions of racism and race and inequality and, and privilege and all that sort of thing. Um, which, you know, I think it's, it's extremely easy to go on the defensive, whether you are on the surface or not, or externally, but certainly internally. I mean, it's hard. I know, I can't remember the, the person that came that, um, a black woman who came who, we did a workshop on racism. Not a lot of people attended. This was like, yeah. uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm not sure either. Angel Kyoto Williams? Not Angel Kyoto Williams. It was prior to her because we didn't do a workshop with Angel. Moyen, I can't remember her name. Nam Yoho Renge Kyo people. Anyway. Mioki so. Kane Barrett. Say that again? Mioki from yeah. Houston. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. So one of the questions that there was, was, um, you know, talk about, I think it was talk about ethnicity or what race are you or what, but I think it was presented as ethnicity. Well, it was kind of a trick question because it wasn't whether like me, I'm Irish, blah, blah, blah. It was the, the right answer was white to identify as white. And because there's a history behind that conversation that, that I didn't know about. And then I, I feel embarrassed because I like to be in the know, you know. Just tiny things like that. So I wanted to comment on the thing about the table. 
and the food, it's not just like the, the differences are you sit at a table, somebody else sits in the backyard on the ground. You get better food, you get fresh food, somebody else gets crappy food. You get in trouble because you don't have the right manners. Oh, you didn't pass from the left to the right, you, you gotta go outside. Or you gotta stand in line in the, on the street and wait for your food and you're, not, you're gonna get slopped. Um, you're gonna get punished because you don't have the right clothes at the table or, you, or in the street or you don't, I mean, it's just, it gets more dense and more complicated. And then you get put in jail because, uh, I don't know what, related to food, but you stole some. I mean, it, I think it gets, it's so, that that's the part that maybe if you're white and somewhat privileged or even white and not privileged in some ways, that, that, is, that becomes invisible to us. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, the statement you started out with about how hard it is to talk uh, to people, especially black people, about how they feel about things and how we feel about things. I, I think that's so, so, so true. Um, I think if we could do something to help that along, that would be a wonderful uh, action to take. Yeah, because I think, it's, I think it's hard to be truthful, to be vulnerable about this issue as a white person. To be really vulnerable, I think, is is very confronting and difficult. Yeah, and we have to face a lot of anger, I think, and we have to be brave and face it. So Katie, did you have your hand up? Yes. Um, uh, yes, regarding anger, um, I think it, it's exactly right that it's so difficult to, once you've identified the problem, that there is a problem, to know what to do with the anger. And I think that, um, I know that I've been, I have done this a whole lot, is if I, if I sort of see somebody being sort of overtly um, maybe benefiting from racism in a way that I don't, then I, it's really easy for me to, to shout at them for, for sort of this maybe more overt um, problem or sort of offense. And it, it, it is a problem, but I think a lot of the times it's sort of like, like, oh, look, a bird. Like it's like looking, diverting attention from yourself in this way that like I always, I started to realize that I, I'm really annoyed by people who have a tendency that reminds me of myself. <laughs> and I think sometimes, like, if I hear, I think it, my one theory I have that it might relate to, um, we just have a lot of shame and we don't know how to begin to, if we begin to look at ourselves, there's a lot of unraveling that has to be done and a lot of sort of guilt and grieving, I think. Um, and it's so it's easier to sort of take a public immediate action. Um, yeah. But it's not always helpful. 
too. Like it's maybe it's helpful for you to have a cathartic sort of angry confrontation and like yell at your uncle, which I've done. Um, and we don't speak anymore. And maybe um, doing sort of using refuge, like Bruce was saying, um, to sort of investigate for myself what what's happening and come at the conversation from another from a place that's not as angry and that it also admits that i um i am still racist like so it's really it's really a, a lot of hypocrisy to call other people racist um when like i think it's necessary to have those conversations at the same time it is um it's sort of like just putting a label on a um, huge issue <laughs> that's like, mm -hmm. it's like saying the sky is blue and like, but blaming someone else for it. I don't know. I'm going to stop with the analogies. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, it's very oversimplifying, isn't it, to call someone racist or to think that if we get rid of policemen, the problem will go away, or we get rid of, you know. Thank you. All right. Anybody else? This is turning into a very interesting discussion. I'm loving it. Ah, is that you, Ernest? Yes. Um, um, I, I seem to be good at kind of going off in strange directions sometimes, but I uh, recently had a genetic uh, test where you send saliva, saliva off to a company and they break down your ethnicity from from where you came from and and it was interesting uh because they it was mostly anglo-saxon as you can imagine and some irish and a few other things but they had some sort of genetic uh trace that they could trace back to an african-american man a no, not a black man that lived in northern Africa about 4,000 years ago. And so uh, the, I guess the takeaway from that was we're all part of that. But that's where humans developed was in, was in Africa. And it's some part of our genes are all uh, black at this point. So I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Tanahasi Coates uh, makes a big issue about that. There, there, there really isn't any such thing as different races. It's just a construct that we've come up with uh, to make things more convenient and easier to subjugate one group or another. It's just biologically a totally meaningless term. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Who? Where are you? I don't see you. <laughs> but uh, it's Anne. I. Anne. Oh, yeah. Hi, Anne. I see you now. <laughs> I was just thinking about one of the comments by our great leader about needing to dominate, and I think that's actually the real problem. What What makes us need to dominate, and that's where racism comes from. So that's all I have to say. Yeah, well, thank you. And that, that is one of the ones I was coming to on this list. 
which is under the guise of uh, debilitating judgment about one's negativity or shadow side, which I think means hating yourself. And uh, I think that's another way of saying what you're saying, that uh, people that hate themselves, which is uh, quite a number of us, uh, or in some way, not totally, but, you know, it, it's a self-hatred that uh, I think is 90%, if not 100% of what uh, causes all of this to happen. And can you tell me again, what was the word you used? It wasn't hating oneself. It was, oh, the need to dominate. I remember now, the need to dominate. Um, and I think that comes, in my, in my experience, in my life, I feel like that comes from uh, hating uh, oneself or the need to control uh, and the need to feel powerful because you don't feel powerful, you feel powerless. And so, uh, you know, those slaveholders back in um, the early part of, uh, of all of this institutional racism, where it all began, uh, had to feel good about what they were doing, uh, which was a pretty evil practice of owning other bodies and uh, forcing them to do uh, what was in their power to uh, make them do, um, had to believe that um, that they were superior and that, uh, that um, these, these slaves were, um, you know, uh, inferior and they made that uh, into a story and it's a story that has been torturing back black lives ever since so yeah so I think uh, looking into our own self-hatred our own self uh, uh, our judgment our self-judgments is really really important but again that's naval uh, our, our naval get our naval watching Hey Pat. Yes. Who's who's speaking? Rob. Oh, yeah. Hi. Hi, Rob. Um, if it's at all helpful to think of racism as a form of delusion, and and by doing so, does that help us look at it in a way where we we understand? Well, yeah, I just, I just wonder if that's helpful. That's just the thought I had. Thank you. Okay, to look at racism as, uh, as, a, as delusion. Yes. Um, I don't know if it's helpful. It definitely is, uh, you know, uh, most of our, uh, our, our thinking about uh, our othering, our splitting stuff into him and me or them and us. It's, we know that's all delusion, and this is another example of it. Whether it's helpful uh, in this, uh, helpful in dismantling this uh, this um, horror of um, institutionalized racism, maybe maybe it's helpful. Well, we've kind of gotten into a more uh, broader discussion than, than just uh, spiritual bypassing. But I will go up and uh, just, uh, uh, I will talk about the, a couple of more points, just a, a two more that I have. Um, and kind of brought up the one about uh, hating ourselves and, uh, and uh, uh, another 
a way we uh, spiritually bypass is through intellectualism, you know, during talking, discussing. Not that those things are bad, but if we emphasize that to the detriment of jumping into uh, a practice, uh, it's bypassing. And I wanted to mention, uh, just because I really enjoyed his last point uh, in his list of different ways we spiritually bypass, uh, and uh, that is delusions of having arrived at a higher level of being. Wow, bingo. That, that kind of hit me right in the, right in the forehead. Uh, I guess it's so, it's so uh, easy to think of uh, developing my practice and getting credit for it. You know, that oh, maybe people will respect me and like me if I'm uh, a deeper practitioner. And he said this wonderful thing. I, I just love it. I think I'm going to make a sign and put it up in my room. He said, there are no Oscars for awakening. So I just enjoyed that and I'll share it with you. So I'll just end, uh, I'll end with a quote and if anybody else, then we can uh, continue the discussion after uh, the chant. Uh, this is a quote from Mr. Masters who was writing about spiritual bypassing. He said, most of the time when we're immersed in spiritual bypassing, we like the light but not the heat. And when we're caught up in the grosser forms of spiritual bypassing, we'd usually much rather theorize about the frontiers of consciousness and then actually go there. That reminded me of that story about the dragon, the man who loved dragons until he actually ran into the real one. I think that came up when David Chadwick was here a couple of weeks ago. But if we really want the light, we cannot afford to flee the heat. As Viktor Frankl said, what gives light must endure burning. And being with the fire's heat doesn't just mean sitting with the difficult stuff in meditation, but also going into it, trekking to its core, facing and entering and getting intimate with whatever is there, however scary or traumatic or sad and wrong. 